This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We'd like to welcome you to Bite Into It, talking computing, technology, all the new things that we love. This evening, you're joined by Simon, Cassie and Vanessa. Thanks for joining me, guys. And really excited. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice to have you back for your first shows of the year. And uh, coming up later tonight, we are going to be speaking to um, a technology uh, partner of Deakin University who's been behind some advances in how they train med students. So if you want to hear all about amazing um, medical sensors come alive, it's going to be a little bit like that operation game that people used to play, <laughs> sensors inside things, but slightly more advanced, I'd say. I think that game is the reason I didn't become a doctor. <laughs> yeah, there'll be no red noses and buzzing but um look up look out for that a little bit later uh before we get to that let's um let's hear some news well speaking of toys toy maker mattel is releasing a 3d printer called the thing maker uh you'll be able to build objects in an app which will be available for ios and android and you'll be able to get pre-configured bits and pieces and drag and drop them together to build your own toy. Um, it was announced at a trade fair in Manhattan or um, ahead of a trade fair in Manhattan and uh, the quoted price is $300. That's which is actually pretty reasonable pretty sounding. Pretty reasonable sounding. Um, I'm assuming that's US dollars. Sure. But still, it's pretty cheap. Uh, and interestingly enough... Uh, it will be compatible with third-party filaments as well. Wow, that's really great to see. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was expecting at that price that they would, you know, bring you in on the printer and charge you for the ink, as the old saying goes, but um, no. When you, you think that there has to be software package with that because kids couldn't just get going with AutoCAD, then that's, well, that's right. pretty so good there, value. There is the app, so yeah. um, and you will, so you will need a tablet mm. of some form. Um, there's no word as to it. Don't, I don't know what whether they'll be including licensed content with that or whether you you can buy your own Barbie and customise at will. or But, I mean, I think it's, um, it's a really interesting move and uh, I, I imagine will be hacked within minutes of it going on the shelves as well, so especially if it isn't already open. Well, interestingly enough, um, it, they did say that they were marketing it for 13 plus um, with the little pieces and enough for three plus. So, you know, they're not being that edible. <laughs> um, but yeah, they are marketing it as, you know, a place to make things rather than just a toy, even though they do have that possibility of licensed content in the future. But um, I'm really excited about, you know, modifications for existing toys like Cyborg, Barbie, or um, we've had a lot of social media stuff like, <laughs> yeah, I know that's, that's great. But um, even the ability to make a wheelchair for your Barbie or crutches for your toy or something that emulates what you've necessarily got um we've got children of varying you know different abilities varying different features and it would just be so awesome to be able to to use it in that respect as well a little oxygen tank for your barbie like 
I can think of a whole armory of things that would get created uh, for my brother's old He-Man. Oh. I imagine you know, he always wanted the double-headed axe type weapon, so I think that would be coming out of there. Well, it's it's really interesting to see a toy maker go down this route because, I mean, uh, it's forward thinking of them. Uh, I imagine that a lot of people would consider this to be cutting their own lunch, but if they can be the first to jump into this space, because we haven't really seen a consumer-level, easy-to-use 3D printer. Plenty of people have tried and we've been getting there, but for a major company like Mattel to produce something like this, which I'm assuming will have to be, you know, relatively plug-and-play, otherwise the... um, you know, the support costs would be huge if they didn't. So I imagine that they're going to get this pretty solidly locked down and ready to go. I think that concept of co-creation is really strong here. They've tapped into a generational difference that's been going on for a while now and that people don't just want to be given something and have have a didactic kind of story laid before them and this is how you play and engage with our things. Now it's much more about, oh, you get a skill, Mm. you get an experience and you get... I don't know, something out of it, something tangible, I guess. So that's that's quite amazing. Well, well the combination of a thing maker and a little bits electronic set could see some pretty cool Ooh. devices. The app's live now at the moment. It's just the printer that's pre-ordering so they're still doing some testing but um, it's actually you can actually use it with other standard 3d printers so if anyone out there has um, a 3d printer and wants to download the Mattel thing maker app we'd be really interested to see what you've come up with as well yeah definitely tweet us a picture or you know just send us a toy yeah we're, <laughs> we're at buy into it uh, on Twitter if you happen to to do that. We'd love to see anything. I feel really bad going to a little piece of tax news now, but that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> uh, the federal government has introduced a Netflix tax bill and uh, we, we spoke about this coming on last year, but uh, in a statement on the 10th of February, the government has said the new bill would protect the integrity of our tax system and ensure a level playing field for Australian businesses. And it's pretty much following through on something that they said in the budget would happen. Uh, so it's an amendment to the tax and superannuation laws of Australia. Really, it requires overseas vendors selling digital products or services such as apps and downloads to register, report and pay GST on their sales. So it's obviously called Netflix uh, for a reason, the Netflix tax for a reason. Um, They have said that current laws discriminate between software subscription services provided by local suppliers and ones provided from overseas suppliers. And so they say that that's that's not fair. Now, I think I probably agree with the premise of that and that you you don't want to disadvantage local businesses. Um, But I I guess my my, uh, questions about this would be how are they going to figure out the location of a supplier and uh, where does it start crossing over into, do they base it on... Um, where someone's credit card's registered or, you know, if people are using VPNs and they can reasonably spoof things and if they have valid overseas credit cards, where does that start becoming a logistical nightmare? Um, Yeah, it's it's kind of tricky. I guess it moves into fraud territory pretty quickly. Well, I think that's the the difference is is that if... It's one thing to uh, geododge 
and avoid copyright law. But avoiding tax law is an entirely different kettle of fish and mm. the uh, tax office are a little bit more serious about these sorts of things than, uh, and you know, tax fraud is serious. So if yeah. you're doing the same sorts of things as you have been doing in a fairly laissez-faire way with uh, copyright law and then start applying that to tax law, you could end up in some seriously deep Problems, Especially because the ATO is one of the uh, registered bodies that will have access to uh, data from the new data retention legislation. This is interesting to me in that the uh, unless I'm completely behind the times, I thought that the $200 um, GST limit on physical goods was still in place, that you can still import physical goods without GST. So which puts digital goods and physical goods in in entirely different categories. Yeah, because apps cost so little. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, there's a limited limited number of $200 apps in the world. (laughs) (laughs) There certainly are. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in reality. Uh, I guess we have warned on the show before that that some people who were using means of getting international or American uh, Netflix already had to watch out for the credit card fraud issue. Lots of people, you know, if you have a valid overseas credit card, that's fine, but people were often sort of lying about the location of their card and and Netflix, it was in their interest to sort of turn a blind eye and just take the money. But um, technically that was also quite problematic legally. So now that there's actually a move in this direction, I think we should watch out for, you know, any clamp downs. But still, if you're um, subscribed to Netflix here, Australian Netflix, Mm. you can get American Netflix if you happen to be in America at that time. Oh, right. Or if your computer says that you're in America at that time. Oh, subtle distinction. Yeah. Good point. So I'm Mm. subscribed here, but, um, you know... You travel to the States frequently. Traveling. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a jet setter. Uh, Well, you have to do that for your career, you know. It's just how it is. And that's the line that we're sticking to. (laughs) You're with Bite Into It, discussing computers and technology and everything that affects the tech in your life. Uh, We've got Cassie and Simon and Vanessa in studio this evening. And we've just been joined by Carmel Dollison, who is the CEO of Tech Collect. And we'll explain exactly what they do in just a moment. Welcome, Carmel. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. That's our pleasure. Now, you at Tech Collect are experts in e-waste, and I wonder if you could just define that for our listeners. Certainly. E-waste, in its true concept, is any piece of um, equipment that requires a power source, be it a battery or connected to AC power. Okay, so that's nice and simple. Everything. Yeah, it covers everything from... Um, your laptop, your computer, and in the broader sense, although we don't cover these products, fridges and washing machines and hair dryers and, you know, vacuums, so anything that requires a power source. And then um, children's toys, battery-operated toys, remotes for TVs, all of that equipment is part of the true description of e-waste. The e-waste we're looking at with Tech Collect is um, end-of-life televisions, computers printers and all of the peripherals that plug into um, computers and all the cables and bits and pieces. Now that's a particularly interesting area because uh, especially post-Christmas you tend to drive around your suburbs and I don't know about you guys but I tend to see quite a few of these objects um, on on the sidewalk. Well it's not a sidewalk here, what do we call it? A, a, footpath. a footpath. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's been Americanised. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, and I wonder if they're all going to a good home. Um, so, Carmel, do you have any any stats on on where some of this is going? Yeah, we certainly do. We um, we recently undertook some uh, consumer research, and really great data came out of the research indicating that while over ninety five percent of Australians believe it's important to recycle e waste, about forty five percent of them actually do. So it's it's a bit of a um, dilemma, and there's a number of reasons which we can talk about as to why um, the willingness and interest in doing so is different to the action. Um, a lot of people do, as you say, place their you know dead TV out on the the curbside, and. Um, in the hope that the council will take it away and make sure it doesn't go to landfill. It, while that's a great intent, it doesn't always work. Not all councils recycle their e-waste. So it's really important that um, any of your listeners who need to get rid of a, you know, an old telly or um, computers actually check with the council to find out what happens to it because there's valuable materials within these products that if we reuse them means we don't have to mine those resources and they stay in the ground for future generations. So it's a really good outcome for people to recycle these products. Apart from the environmental benefit of not mining more, are there any environmental problems with just, you know, turfing your phone in the bin? Um, well, it creates, I guess, problems, you know, down along the line, particularly things like a mobile phone. Um, they mostly have a lithium-ion iron battery in them and they're not something that um, the people who collect your rubbish bin want to put through a compactor. So, you know, they need to be pulled out and those batteries specially treated because they can be quite dangerous, um, you know, in the waste stream and, you know, there has been... Um, issues around compactor trucks in fact um, being damaged through batteries being left in the waste um, in you know from people's bins so yes it's important that people don't just throw them in the bin and they you know take a responsible approach to recycling now Carmel I must admit that I am quite guilty of of (laughs) this uh, but especially I found at my grandparents house they have a whole room it seems with computers from the early 90s and um, so forth every time they've gotten a new computer they've put their old one in there because they're worried about their information their files getting into the wrong hands and it's often been because the computers shut down or um, broken somehow and they haven't had the skills to be able to clear it properly. I assume that you encounter this a lot as some sort of resistance to wanting to recycle. Yes. Um, unfortunately, your grandparents are not alone. <laughs> it's quite common. And there's lots of behavioural reasons why we do what we do. Um, what the research certainly showed us was that, you know, about 45% of people just don't know what to do. So they think, well, I know I should do something and I know I shouldn't put it in my bin, but I don't know what the hell to do with it. So I'll pop it in a drawer or pop it in a cupboard and, you know, that enlightenment will arrive and then I'll deal with it. And of course it never does. Um, Then there's a concern about the data. Obviously on phones and tablets and computers, we've got a lot of our personal information and people don't want that getting into the wrong hands. So that too is a factor in, you know, people's consideration about, you know, about um, 38% of people say, well, I don't want my data getting into the wrong hands, I'll just store it and worry about it, you know, later. 
And as you guys probably know, it's relatively easy to remove the data from devices and the recycling program that we run, all people need to do is remove their data, find their nearest drop-off point, drop it in, and then we'll fully recycle that product. So... A long time ago, I remember reading a story about a, a computer that had been recycled and ended up in the third world and, and people ended up reading some data off it. And uh, I remember that those sort of scare cases were around a long time ago and, and that really started getting people aware of, of cleaning up their hard drives before letting them go. Um, is there, has there been any progress with um, how the waste is handled from that perspective? Certainly, we're all about responsible recycling and we operate under the federal government's national television and computer recycling program. So we're measured on actually recovering the resources from the product. So when we receive product, we are responsible for taking it back to a raw commodity. So it doesn't get shipped anywhere. It's broken down in Australia and part of the steps in that process of getting, you know, the metals and the glass and the plastics and then the precious metals, we take them back to a raw commodity so they can be used in the manufacture of any type of product. So it may come back as you know, jewellery or um, plastic fence posts or furniture or, or, in fact, be used in new technology. So Australia's done quite a lot to ensure that, um, you know, not working product doesn't get shipped overseas. We're party to a number of international conventions that prohibit the shipping of e-waste to um, third world countries. So from a regulatory perspective, the approach is trying to stop that. It's, it is difficult to stop, um, but they are seeking to stop that. We're not aware of you know, um, shipments going that way. The National Television and Computer Recycling Scheme is set up to ensure, one, product doesn't go to landfill in Australia, but two, it's recycled, and, and that's a really important outcome. It'd be great if you um, had sort of an amnesty project as well where uh, <laughs> people could come in with all their tech without shame and maybe even see it or help in wiping that for, for older Australians who um, have that kind of stuff at home but don't oh, know how I think to manage it. I think that's unfair on older Australians. I don't think that problem is unique to My older Australians. My older Australians. <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents who are probably listening, I'm calling you out. <laughs> Yeah, look, um, wiping the data is certainly something that, you know, there are applications you can download um, from the internet to assist you in wiping the data. And it is true that not everybody is tech savvy and knows how to do that. Um, And that's probably where the younger generation can step in and help um, either those that aren't as technically literate or, you know, aren't aware of how to, um, you know, wipe their data. from, for us, we have to make the data the responsibility of the individual. Um, so um, while we you know, may be able to assist uh, the odd candidate, um, in theory, or not in theory, in practice, the owner of the technology needs to wipe their data so that they then know that it doesn't exist on the, on the machine and there's no way anyone um, can get access it. Having said that, our process obviously you know, shreds this product so that um, you know, it's taken down and separated out into the different commodities. A little while ago, our rice cooker broke and it sat around the house for an embarrassingly long time <laughs> as we missed collection afternoon after collection afternoon at um, you know this 
community house or that place over there because we just simply found ourselves too busy to get there on the weekend. Is there any scope for a household collection of e-waste? Under our program, um, we're unable to collect from homes, but that's certainly where councils uh, do provide a service and, you know, provide both hard waste collections and you know, special drop-off days. So the local council is probably the best bit. There are some um, charities that will assist uh, particularly the elderly or people who have a disability and don't have access to a car. So there are some charities that can assist. Um, certainly what you're saying is also represented in our data. About 15% of people said um, it was too hard and they just didn't have time anyway. So, you know, I think I think we are caught in very busy lives and, um, you know, for us to take that action, we actually need to, you know, put it as a priority. Are there any... So you've got the data on why people aren't recycling their e-waste. Um, are there any solutions which have come from this data that you can that you can see? Um, what we found generally, and, and the, a couple of suggestions have come out of this, is um, can the retailers help in this process? So can there be some incentive for from the retailers, or can they at least be part of the solution? So when people are in making their decisions about what they're going to buy, they can then at least advertise there is a program um, that will take your old product and will fully recycle it. So, you know, certainly that's a good initiative because when you're buying the new one is when you're thinking about what you'll do with your old one and um, those sort of initiatives are what we'd like to see. And the whole reality of these products are we buy them because we want the latest or the previous one has died and we need to take responsibility for the products that we buy and consume so we really need to think about not just responsible consumerism when we're buying a new product you know which brand should i buy which brand is supporting you know a take back program but what am i going to do with the old product and you know if it's got a useful life then we should encourage that so you know if we can pass it on um, to somebody else who can make use of it that's fantastic if we can't then we need to get it so that it can be recycled. Carmel, we love the environmental angle of your message and uh, really appreciate you speaking with us this evening. If people want to find out more, they can at www.techcollect.com.au and we'll send out that link on our social media channels afterwards as well. Um, hopefully our show can help a little bit with the uh, deletion of data cleanly part of the equation as uh, you guys are doing the rest of the part. Thanks, Carmel. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Good night. You're with Bite Into It. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have just been joined by Richard Yanieri. He is the YTech Managing Director and YTech Research and Development Lead, and they are a key industry partner of Deakin University and particularly um, Deakin's Centre for Intelligent Systems Research. And we're going to be delving into a project there. But before we do, Richard, you want to you want to tell us a little bit more about who is involved in your project yes, team? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the program. It sounds like great fun. Your program. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. Uh, there is a, a team of about 10 people involved in this, uh, starting with the Centre for Intelligent Systems Research at Deakin, uh, Dr. Sami Hanun, who's an, a, a um, uh, senior research fellow, uh, Dr. James Zhang, who's a research uh, fellow, 
uh, nearly Dr. Burhan Khan, who's <laughs> a PhD uh, candidate, uh, in, who's assisting us on the uh, software side. Dr. Doug Crichton, who's the, um, an associate professor and deputy director of CISR. And importantly, uh, Dr. Saeed Nahavandi, who's the head of CISR and professor, um, Alfred Deakin Professor. Uh, he's the director of CISR. On the School of Medicine side, at Deakin's School of Medicine, we have uh, Karen D'Souza, senior educator, and importantly, Kelly Britt, who's a senior educator and the subject matter ex- expert that's assisted us on uh, what we'll tell you about. Uh, and on our side, I take between 2009 and 2012, a person that's no longer is with us, working somewhere else right now, Dr. Darhan Ajay. So I wanted to acknowledge their, their assistance. I love that, Richard. And now that you've thoroughly intimidated us with that collection of uh, <laughs> doctors. PhD doctors and medical doctors, um, Simon and Cassie and I would love to know a little bit more about your work. So we're going to describe what we know about it and uh, and and then we're going to hear in your words what you've done. So there's this fantastic news that came out and we you know, we saw some articles in the conversation and things about how you have been developing a mannequin-based uh, sensor-filled sort of technology to help train medical students. And we just went, wow, that sounds really high-tech. We all remember the rubbery dolls that we might have learnt CPR on, but this was taking things to a whole nother level. So we'd love to hear um, if you could describe the problem, first of all, that you wanted to solve, and uh, and we'll go from there. Let me start briefly from the beginning. Sure. Uh, there's a concept that started with Whitek uh, about 2008-2009 of what we call... Um, Error trajectories or error avoidance. Um, um, background, my background is aerospace engineering, so the holy grail is the cockpit to assist in the cockpit. Uh, that led to event trajectory analysis, a concept that we've been reading about um, and thinking about for some eight, nine years. Um, and we wanted to augment the individual, shall we say, cognitively to assist in eliminating problems of memory or inattentional blindness. Uh, and I can explain that later if we have the time. Um, so we conceived the technology idea to augment a human operator to do some things. Computational intelligence, which is a term that's bandied about right now that involves a number of techniques and algorithms, is being used uh, by large organizations in many areas. Uh, you've heard of IBM's Watson that plays Jeopardy very well. Absolutely. And other technologies coming out of Amazon, Google, etc. We've been playing in that game for some nine years, and we, we can see where this is heading. So we've been investing in that since then. Uh, so we wanted to assist in areas of environments where there's cognitive demand, and relieve that cognitive demand on the human being and by allowing a machine to do some things that you can trust the machine to do for you. Not hands-off, but to assist you. So that's a problem. That's the, the initial pro, uh, the proposition. And uh, we we got together with um, CISR and they said, well, we have a candidate here perhaps that we can work with. We have data coming out of mannequins. Let me be more specific in a second. Uh, and we have the subject matter experts, which is what you need in this space the best and most important conversation is that between the subject matter expert and the knowledge scientist. Yes. Okay? I'm not yet that. I'm just (laughs) a budding knowledge engineer learning about the algorithms. Okay? Um, So we started that conversation. The problem was of fitting that appropriate uh, computational intelligence to various domains. In this case, training at the School of Medicine using mannequins in, say, CPR. Mm -hmm. So you can have advanced, uh, sorry, basic life-saving um, standards, uh, scenarios, uh, and uh, advanced ones, for example. They're standards. And they train using mannequins that have sensors, they have data coming out of those. 
and they train a certain fashion and there's a certain cognitive load to observe using your soft skills and there's a certain prosaic type of ground truth data where you just grab data that you can you need to annotate okay so there's a certain load cognitive load on the educator yeah so in terms of augmenting the human we often think of these days we're attached to our smartphones they often augment our memory you know nobody keeps a head full of you know 10 digit numbers anymore but I wonder when you're looking at these, these particular uh, trainees, medical students, and you're deciding, you know, what you're going to augment. You know, how how did you start to to look at that picture? Okay, the conversation again. I go back to that conversation between mm. the subject matter expert, uh, the educator, that says that these are the things that I'm looking out for: cues, behaviours, things that are missing, things that are done well, etc. Uh, and then we say, what can we capture reliably that we can trust uh, a machine? Let's call it a machine to do mm. for us and mm-hmm. that we don't have to think. We can put aside and it relieves that cognitive load. So we, we look at what the mannequin can give us in terms of data. We capture those things and, and then we use that, in, that data to turn it into information that's useful to the subject matter expert. It could be to automatically produce a report on some cues and don't forget we're talking about event trajectory so we're talking temporal variations here some latent actions some things that have been completed not completed some actions that have been violated not done well this is where time is important these event trajectories are the key to it so in this example then what were those things that the machine that we can trust the machine to capture okay uh let's take the uh, basic life-saving um uh scenario, okay, which is part of our library, uh, that was encoded by using a rule-based uh, approach by the subject matter expert in this pla- in, in this time. So they would, uh, in this occasion, they would uh, encode that and uh, they would be looking for things such as um, checking blood pressure, say a particular action, defibrillation, another particular action, and other things that the clinicians will tell you, but right now I can't recall. <laughs> uh, um, and things that are important to them to observe that had been done. The mannequin would actually record that information. Uh, objectively, it's not an opinion, and you don't have to go to the logbook to, to the log data file to look at that. Does it automatically? So, at the end of a training session for the individual trainee, it would immediately appear for you as a report. So you don't have to pay attention to that anymore. Now you can observe what the person did. Did he or she look at the patient? Did he, yeah? So you're really saying that, that this isn't something that the students can interpret necessarily. It's something that the trainers use so that they have to pay attention to less things while they're training? You, yeah, good question. Uh, look, this works at all levels. It is an after-action review or a debriefing tool. Uh-huh. So the, the student can look, or the trainee can look at the information afterwards, yes. either before or after a... a verbal debriefing that's a, an ethics question or a question of how you educate mm. um, but uh, it's it's got three levels of, of um, information value one is for uh, introspection by the trainee afterwards one for the educator to see how the training session went and one for the enterprise to decide how well the course is designed how it can change because we aggregate data uh, along the course of many training events so how do you make that decision then between what the computer is going to be good at and what the people are going to be good at. The subject matter expert decides what they want to they want to automate. Don't forget, they have to trust this 100%. We're looking at, I should say this, first we uh, crawl, then we walk, then we run. <laughs> yeah. We need to build confidence in this, never hands off. What we're doing is using the adaptability of the human being to the power of the machine. And our motto is information delayed is information denied. So if I can give you the information immediately while you're looking at your... A trainee, you don't have to worry about that which you had to worry about before. So you save time, it's objectively captured, 
and you can compare it trainee to trainee. No longer an opinion, no longer do you have to actually reduce that data. That sounds really great. I can imagine this being applied in uh, music lessons in a way. In a number of places <laughs> it can be applied, yes. It, and I like the idea that it can remove some elements of bias in instruction. Uh, you could say, you could say, perhaps if there's bias, perhaps um, error proneness in making an observation, mm. or perhaps uh, being too busy cognitively to make uh, to pay attention to something. So, so in this area in particular, uh, we know that the the process for selecting med students has changed a lot over time because they they realise that it's not good enough to be book smart. You also need to have these human skills, a lot of empathy, um, good observation skills, that sort of thing. So now that you're in uh, an environment where you're helping teach med students with your technology, um, is there a point where you look at what systems you're designing and figure out how those might also contribute to creating a more empathetic okay. uh, or more personable outcome? We're talking about soft skills here as yeah. well as, as information. So we've got to be yeah. careful that we, 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 we're joining those two things and it's in the hands of the subject matter expert, the educator, that's, got, that's considering ethics, mm. the quality of training, the soft skills. What it does is it relieves the cognitive load uh, a little bit from the educator and he or she can pay attention to the student, uh, have greater empathy therefore because she or he is not that busy to actually watch that. You, you may actually be able to relieve the load on, on people that are assisting the training at the time. But it also gives you time to now concentrate on the actual training. Why are you doing this? The information that we're gaining uh, will actually not just tell us what has gone well, in what has been done late or not done at all, but also why when you start looking across um, many data sets for different cohorts of students and different sites, uh, you can see things that emerge that you don't normally see when you're just looking at your single student. Yeah, so let's let's delve into that a little bit um, and look at what sort of improvements you're measuring. You've talked about some of the sensors you're using, which is giving us some clues. Yeah, you, you, let's quickly look at the, what the mannequin would have. Mm. And there's many uh, commercially available mannequins out there with lots of information. Mm. Uh, they have sensors for when you do CPR and you press and where you press, whether you're just a broken a rib because you, placed, you did the compressions in the wrong place. How many times you did it, how often you did it, uh, the pulse, blood pressure, all those things can be simulated, mm. right? Um, then looking at the, at the the other side where the information that you just gained, um, you can quickly see information coming out of that data emerging that leads to conversations with the educator. And we had this conversation last week between uh, Dr. Sami Hanun and, uh, and Kelly Britt where they were both saying, oh, but look what I've just discovered. And I could do this. Could I plot that? Certainly. It's all there. And I could use this for X, Y, and Z, meaning I can improve my course. Mm. I can do other things about what I did in that step of the course. And don't forget, all of these libraries can be reused. So yeah. the subject matter expert encodes these at first, and then it can just be used. So what's next? Well, this is just the beginning. Um, we've been working on this for, as I said, a number of years. And there's a lot of reading in the background uh, on the human factor side, on the uh, machine, uh, human-machine integration, intractable problems, problems of complexity, problems of are we really theoretically going to um, be able to measure some of these event trajectories? For me, the holy grail is to have an assistant behind the pilot in a cockpit where it's not, a, it's not, a, um, it's not the instruments of the uh, aircraft, it's not the, the aircraft itself, it's not the pilot, it's not the autopilot. It is an electronic assistant that says, if you do this in your next step, you run out of options. That's a holy grail. So we're thinking about how to augment 
cognitively so you don't make the silly mistakes that human error leads to. Like you're flying inverted and you didn't know that. Mm. So not hands-off, just an assistant that thinks many steps back because it's a machine, perhaps two or three steps forward at looking at what options you're left with if you do one or the other. So that's a holy grail. But many users in between. Richard, I love that you've taken us right from the physical, you know, a mannequin full of sensors all the way through to a holy grail of um, something that can augment our foresight and our, our decision-making capability. Uh, really appreciate you coming and telling us about your partnership. Is there anything uh, else you'd like thing. to mention? You must visit CISR. They're full of toys. They have extraordinary technology. You should do a feature show from there and go and ride on the UMS, the Universal, uh, Universal Motion Simulator. Wow. You would have fun. They're a, bu- a fun bunch of people. And they're very switched on. There you go. You've heard it here first. Uh, we can only hope that we can make time for that in the in the near future. On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It, speaking about tech. And we were Simon, Cassie, and Vanessa this evening. Thanks for tuning in, Simon. You had you stumbled across a great story uh, that you'd like to share. There's. A, a a new website that was launched as part of the Sustainable Living Festival, I believe. Oh, that was on at Fed Square starting yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah. and it, um, it's called Bike Spot. Now it's a uh, it's a collaboration between uh, a mapping sort of a social mapping website called uh, Scrowd Spot, Crowd Spot <laughs> that some people might have heard, and a bicycle advocacy group called the Squeaky Wheel, which is I thought a great name for a bicycle advocacy group. Um, and the idea behind the website is not to necessarily map areas where bike crashes happen or places which are particularly dangerous for bike users, but rather places that bike users feel are particularly dangerous Mm. or places where people are afraid to ride. (sighs) And the, the, it's, it's a collaboration between these two companies. It's been funded by the transport accident commission. Um, but they've also got a whole heap of local councils on board as partners. And so what they're going to do is uh, until uh, until the end of April, they're inviting Melbourne cyclists and if you're a, I think you're a cyclist if you get on a bike once in a while for the purposes of this particular survey, um, to, to go on to the website and to put little markers on a map of Melbourne saying where you find it a bit sketchy to ride. But also, you know, this is the most beautiful place to ride. Mm. Um, and uh, and so both both places that you like riding and also where you're fearful of riding. They're going to collect this data and then match it against the crash data, which is being collected by Vic Roads all the time, mm. and look for disconnects between where people think places are dangerous mm. that actually aren't, that have no history of bike crashes that are, um, you know... Perception are, versus reality. Yeah, perception versus reality. And so, uh, and then they can present this to the council and say, look, you know, maybe you can do something that makes this place a more pleasant place to bicycle. Mm. I th- which I thought was a really interesting use of crowdsourcing because so often we see crowdsourcing based around cold hard facts whereas this is more of an emotional map Mm -hmm. of cycling in melbourne 
That's really interesting too, because I wonder about the collision data. I mean, if there's cars involved and if things get reported, sure. But I think that there'd probably be a lot of, um, oh, that angle's really tight and I always fall off my bike there. Well, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure there's something more valid. Like that's a gravelly part and I skid or, or this is a place that's really dark and I don't ride there after hours because it feels unsafe. Like that sort of thing. So I think some of it could be hard to track. And I like the idea that this could capture some of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, yes, there is the, the spot where I took an angle too <laughs> too fast across a tram track and ended up fracturing ribs. Now, Ooh. that was never reported to the police. No. I was too embarrassed. I barely report that to your friends. <laughs> exactly. You reported it on air. I know. So, uh... uh, you know I'm, I'm open and transparent in that way. Um, but I think... Yeah, you're right. This will bring a lot of the, especially if there is a cluster of of interest around a particular area, then that will bring some of those things to life. And you can, it's not simply um, putting a marker on it and rating how safe or unsafe you feel that is, although that is the first step. You can also comment and provide um, more information about... uh, you know, bash it, bash out a couple of hundred words or however many words you want about how how this place, why you're afraid of it, and then people can actually comment on that point and sort of go, oh yeah, I I agree or I disagree or yeah that that's terrible and this is terrible about that spot too. Fantastic. So, is there a site that's easy to read out, or do we have to put it on Facebook and Twitter? Uh, bike spot is is the website. Fantastic. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's uh, bikespot.crowdspot.com.au. So Very nice. Lots of spots. I'm sure all the bike riding listeners um, will be keen to get an in and have their say on that. Now, Cassie, something's going on tomorrow. I am pretty excited about this. Uh, I just found out about it through an email to my inbox. So uh, it's bringing together two of my favourite things, Ubers, and emojis. Um, apparently tomorrow, <laughs> uh, true though, true. Um, tomorrow, if you have a Samsung Galaxy phone, um, and I, I do have one and I always feel a bit left out because normally cool stuff comes on iPhones. <laughs> um, but if Samsung's pairing up with Uber and between 10 and 4 tomorrow, um, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth, you can actually use the app to request an emoji, uh, sort of present to come to you. Um, they've got sweet emojis, silly emojis, which is a little poo, which is what I'll ask for, treat emojis and love emojis. So uh, they said, you know, demand could be really high and you may not actually get a present, but I've got a five-star rating, so I really hope they consider my application. <laughs> That's great. Um, but yeah, if you've got a Galaxy, maybe check the app tomorrow. You could get something for nothing. There you go. I like that tip. Um, there's an opportunity that I want to shout out this evening, which is that uh, Melbourne WebFest submissions are open. Now, we love Melbourne WebFest here. They're a festival that bring together a lot of screen-based content, including like non-linear type of uh, online storytelling and then serialised things and lots of local amazing contents being made, video content for online. And uh, they have submissions for their festival every year. They do charge because it takes them a lot of time to watch through everything and process things and uh, and they hire people to do this. But the submissions, uh, the $75 fee until the 15th of March and after that, um, the fees go up until applications close on the 10th of April. So they go up to $90 from the 16th of March. So do uh, submit your, your digital video content for Melbourne Web Fest if you're interested in being part of that great festival. 
And that's something I had. Uh, we have a few events going as well that we might want to shout out. Yeah, uh, speaking of video content, uh, Nomon Live, I'm presuming that's how you pronounce it, uh, is happening in early March. It uh, presents an opportunity to look inside some of Australia's visual effects and animation studios. Um, you know, not just, you know, working in... Uh, feature films, but also games, television, documentaries and live immersive experiences, which is something that I think is really going to be a bit of a buzz this year as everyone gets their VR headset. I like that. Just like life, you know, live immersive experiences. Exactly. You know, IRL. <laughs> And so yeah, it's uh, it it looks pretty cool. It's a l- it's a little bit costly, but uh, it's be worth going on to if that's your bag. Excellent, that looks amazing. Um, and it's spelled G N O M O N. If oh, yeah, you're interested that, in that, that's it's a bit tricky. A, yeah, like, that, that's a good. Looks good like tip. Nomon. Yeah. Uh, look, it's it's been a fantastic show back. Welcome back for the first time for the year, Cass and Simon. Thanks for joining me. It's really great. We'd love to say thank you to our guests this evening, Carmel from Tech Collect and Richard from Ytech, who are both doing great things of technology. Uh, we've been bite into it. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.